Before David and Kate Bartenwerfer were even married, they bought a house together and decided to join the house-flipping bandwagon. So they bought a home in San Francisco and renovated it, a project the couple claimed was mostly David's thing, and Kate was largely uninvolved in that process. Soon the Bartenwerfers flipped the home, selling it to Kieran Buckley. But what Buckley didn't know at the time was that the home was riddled with significant defects that David knowingly withheld from him. So Buckley sued and a jury awarded damages. But the Bartonwerfers, now married and deeply in debt, had become insolvent and filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy. The bankruptcy court found that the debt could not be discharged in bankruptcy because it had been obtained fraudulently, finding that the couple had intended to deceive Buckley, and specifically that David knew he was lying about the condition of the house when he sold it. And even if Kate didn't know about the fraudulent scheme, she could still be held accountable for the debt because of their partnership relationship. By the time this case found its way before the court, the question was whether a bankruptcy debtor can be held liable for someone else's fraud, even if they didn't know anything about the fraud when it was committed. Let's find out what the court said right now in the brand new February 22nd, 2023, unanimous opinion of the court in Barton Werfer v. Buckley. Justice Barrett delivered the opinion of the court. The bankruptcy code strikes a balance between the interests of insolvent debtors and their creditors. It generally allows debtors to discharge all pre-bankruptcy liabilities, but it makes exceptions when, in Congress's judgment, the creditor's interest in recovering a particular debt outweighs the debtor's interest in a fresh start. One such exception bars debtors from discharging any debt for money obtained by fraud. The provision obviously applies to a debtor who was the fraudster. But sometimes a debtor is liable for fraud that she did not personally commit. For example, deceit practiced by a partner or an agent we must decide whether the bar extends to this situation too. It does. Written in the passive voice, Section 523A2A turns on how the money was obtained, not who committed fraud to obtain it. In 2005, Kate Bartenwerfer and her then-boyfriend, David Bartenwerfer, jointly purchased a house in San Francisco. Acting as business partners, the pair decided to remodel the house and sell it at a profit. David took charge of the project. He hired an architect, structural engineer, designer, and general contractor. He monitored their work, reviewed invoices, and signed checks. Kate, on the other hand, was largely uninvolved. Like many home renovations, the Bartonwerfer's project was bumpier than anticipated. Still, they managed to get the house on the market, and Kieran Buckley bought it. In conjunction with the sale, 
the Bartonwerfers attested that they had disclosed all material facts relating to the property. Yet after the house was his, Buckley discovered several defects that the Bartonwerfers had not divulged. A leaky roof, defective windows, a missing fire escape, and permit problems. Alleging that he had overpaid in reliance on the Bartonwerfers' misrepresentations, Buckley sued them in California State Court. The jury found in Buckley's favor on his claims for breach of contract, negligence, and non-disclosure of material facts, leaving the Bartonwerfers jointly responsible for more than $200,000 in damages. The Bartonwerfers were unable to pay Buckley, not to mention their other creditors. Seeking relief, they filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy, which allows debtors to get a fresh start by discharging their debts. While that sounds like complete relief, there is a catch. Not all debts are dischargeable. The Code makes several exceptions to the general rule, including the one at issue in this case. Section 523A2A bars the discharge of any debt for money to the extent obtained by false pretenses, a false representation, or actual fraud. Buckley filed an adversary complaint alleging that the money owed on the state court judgment fell within this exception. After a two-day bench trial, the bankruptcy court decided that neither David nor Kate Bartonwerfer could discharge their debt to Buckley. Based on testimony from the parties, real estate agents, and contractors, the court found that David had knowingly concealed the house's defects from Buckley, and the court imputed David's fraudulent intent to Kate because the two had formed a legal partnership to execute the renovation and resale project. The Ninth Circuit's bankruptcy appellate panel agreed as to David's fraudulent intent, but disagreed as to Kate's. As the panel sought, Section 523A2A barred her from discharging the debt only if she knew or had reason to know of David's fraud. It instructed the bankruptcy court to apply that standard on remand, and after a second bench trial, the court concluded that Kate lacked the requisite knowledge of David's fraud and could therefore discharge her liability to Buckley. This time, the bankruptcy appellate panel affirmed the judgment. The Ninth Circuit reversed in relevant part. Invoking our decision in Strang v. Bradner, 1885, it held that a debtor who is liable for her partner's fraud cannot discharge that debt in bankruptcy, regardless of her culpability. Kate thus remained on the hook for her debt to Buckley. We granted certiorari to resolve confusion in the lower courts on the meaning of Section 523A2A. Part 2 Section A We start where we always do, with the text of the statute. Section 523A2A states, 
A discharge under Section 727 of this title does not discharge an individual debtor from any debt for money, property, services, or an extension, renewal, or refinancing of credit to the extent obtained by false pretenses, a false representation, or actual fraud, other than a statement respecting the debtor's or an insider's financial condition. By its terms, this text precludes Kate Bartenwerfer from discharging her liability for the state court judgment. First, she is an individual debtor. Second, the judgment is a debt. And third, because the debt arises from the sale proceeds obtained by David's fraudulent misrepresentations, it is a debt for money obtained by false pretenses, a false representation, or actual fraud. Bartenwerfer disputes the third premise. She admits that, as a grammatical matter, the passive voice statute does not specify a fraudulent actor. But in her view, the statute is most naturally read to bar the discharge of debts for money obtained by the debtor's fraud. To illustrate, she offers the sentence, Jane's clerkship was obtained through hard work. According to Bartenwerfer, an ordinary English speaker would understand this sentence to mean that Jane's hard work led to her clerkship. Section 523A2A supposedly operates the same way. An ordinary English speaker would understand that money obtained by fraud means money obtained by the individual debtor's fraud. Passive voice hides the relevant actor in plain sight. We disagree. Passive voice pulls the actor off the stage. At least on his face, Bartenwerfer's sentence conveys only that someone's hard work led to Jane's clerkship. Whether that be Jane herself, the professor who wrote a last-minute letter of recommendation, or the counselor who collated the application materials. Section 523A2A is similarly broad. Congress framed it to focus on an event that occurs without respect to a specific actor, and therefore without respect to any actor's intent or culpability. The debt must result from someone's fraud, but Congress was agnostic about who committed it. It is true, of course, that context can confine a passive voice sentence to a likely set of actors. If the dean of the law school delivers Bartenwerfer's hypothetical statement to Jane's parents, the most natural implication is that Jane's hard work led to the clerkship. But in the fraud discharge exception, context does not single out the wrongdoer as the relevant actor. Quite the opposite. The relevant legal context, the common law of fraud, has long maintained that fraud liability is not limited to the wrongdoer. For instance, courts have traditionally held principals liable for the frauds of their agents.
They have also held individuals liable for the frauds committed by their partners within the scope of the partnership. Understanding Section 523A2A to reflect the passive voice's usual agnosticism is thus consistent with the age-old rule that individual debtors can be liable for fraudulent schemes they did not devise. Searching for a way to defeat the natural breadth of the passive voice, Bartenwerfer points to our observation that exceptions to discharge should be confined to those plainly expressed. This does not get her far. We have never used this principle to artificially narrow ordinary meaning, which is what Bartenwerfer asks us to do. Instead, we have invoked it to stress that exceptions should not extend beyond their stated terms. In Gleason v. Thaw, we held that liabilities for obtaining property did not include an attorney's services because services are not property. In Kava Hau, we concluded that medical malpractice attributable to negligence or recklessness did not amount to a willful and malicious injury. And in Bullock, interpreting the discharge exception for fraud or defalcation while acting in a fiduciary capacity, embezzlement, or larceny, we applied the familiar nocitura socius canon to hold that the term defalcation possessed a mens rea requirement akin to those of fraud, embezzlement, and larceny. In each case, we reached a result that was plainly expressed by the text and ordinary tools of interpretation. Our interpretation in this case, which rests on basic tenets of grammar, is more of the same. Bartenwerfer also seeks support from Section 523A2A's neighboring provisions, which both require action by the debtor herself. Section 523A2B bars the discharge of debts arising from the use of a statement in writing that is materially false respecting the debtor's or an insider's financial condition on which the creditor to whom the debtor is liable reasonably relied and that the debtor caused to be made or published with intent to deceive. Similarly, Section 523A2C presumptively bars the discharge of recently acquired consumer debts owed to a single creditor and aggregating more than $500 for luxury goods or services incurred by an individual debtor and cash advances aggregating more than $750 obtained by an individual debtor. Unlike subparagraph A, the discharge exceptions in subparagraphs B and C expressly require some culpable act on the part of the debtor. According to Bartenwerfer, these provisions make explicit what goes without saying in A the debtor's own fraud must have given rise to the debt. This argument flips the rule that when Congress includes particular language in one section of a statute, but omits it in another section of the same act, 
we generally take the choice to be deliberate. As the word generally indicates, this rule is not absolute. Context counts, and it is sometimes difficult to read much into the absence of a word that is present elsewhere in a statute. But if there is an inference to be drawn here, it is not the one that Bartenwerfer suggests. The more likely inference is that A excludes debtor culpability from consideration given that B and C expressly hinge on it. Bartenwerfer retorts that it would have made no sense for Congress to set up such a dichotomy, particularly between A and B. These two provisions are linked. A carves out fraudulent statements respecting the debtor's or an insider's financial condition, while B governs such statements that are reduced to writing. In Bartenwerfer's view, it defies credulity to think that Congress would bar debtors from discharging liability for mine-run fraud they did not personally commit while simultaneously allowing debtors to discharge liability for potentially more serious fraudulent statements they did not personally make. But in field, we offered a possible answer for why B contains a more debtor-friendly discharge rule than A. Congress may have wanted to moderate the burden on individuals who submitted false financial statements, not because lies about financial condition are less blameworthy than others, but because the relative equities might be affected by practices of consumer finance companies, which sometimes have encouraged such falsity by their borrowers for the very purpose of insulating their own claims from discharge. This concern may also have informed Congress's decision to limit B's prohibition on discharge to fraudulent conduct by the debtor herself. Whatever the rationale, it does not defy credulity to think that Congress established differing rules for A and B. Section B. Our precedent, along with Congress's response to it, eliminates any possible doubt about our textual analysis. In the late 19th century, the discharge exception for fraud read as follows. No debt created by the fraud or embezzlement of the bankrupt shall be discharged under this act. This language seemed to limit the exception to fraud committed by the debtor herself, the position that Bartenwerfer advocates here. But we held otherwise in Strang v. Bradner. In that case, the business partner of John and Joseph Holland lied to fellow merchants in order to secure promissory notes for the benefit of their partnership. After a state court held all three partners liable for fraud, the Hollands tried to discharge their debts in bankruptcy on the ground that their partners' misrepresentations were not made by their direction nor with their knowledge. Even though the statute required the debt to be created by the fraud of the bankrupt, we held that the Hollands could not discharge their debts to the deceived merchants. The fraud of one partner, we explained, is the fraud of all because each partner 
was the agent and representative of the firm with reference to all business within the scope of the partnership. And the reason for this rule was particularly easy to see because the partners, who were not themselves guilty of wrong, received and appropriated the fruits of the fraudulent conduct of their associate in business. The next development, Congress's post-Strang legislation, is the linchpin. This court generally assumes that when Congress enacts statutes, it is aware of this court's relevant precedents. Section 523A2 is no exception to this interpretive rule. So if Congress had reenacted the discharge exception for fraud without change, we would assume that it meant to incorporate Strang's interpretation. But Congress went even further than mere reenactment. Thirteen years after Strang, when Congress next overhauled bankruptcy law, it deleted, quote, of the bankrupt, unquote, from the discharge exception for fraud which is the predecessor to the modern Section 523A2A. By doing so, Congress cut from the statute the strongest textual hook counseling against the outcome in Strang. The unmistakable implication is that Congress embraced Strang's holding, so we do too. Section C. In a last-ditch effort to persuade us, Bartenwerfer invokes the fresh start policy of modern bankruptcy law. Precluding faultless debtors from discharging liabilities run up by their associates, she says, is inconsistent with that policy, so Section 523A2A cannot apply to her. A contrary holding would be a throwback to the harsh days when debtors faced perpetual bondage to their creditors, surviving on a miserable pittance and dependent upon the bounty or forbearance of their creditors. The same Congress that championed the fresh start could not also have shackled honest debtors with liability for frauds that they did not personally commit. This argument earns credit for color, but not much else. To begin, it characterizes the bankruptcy code as focused on the unadulterated pursuit of the debtor's interest. But the code, like all statutes, balances multiple, often competing, interests. Section 523 is a case in point. Barring certain debts from discharge necessarily reflects aims distinct from wiping the bankrupt's slate clean. Perhaps Congress concluded that these debts involved particularly deserving creditors, particularly undeserving debtors, or both. Regardless, if a fresh start were all that mattered, Section 523 would not exist. No statute pursues a single policy at all costs, and we are not free to rewrite this statute or any other as if it did. It also bears emphasis, because the thread is easily lost in Bartenwerfer's argument, that Section 523A2A does not define the scope of one person's liability 
for another's fraud. That is the function of the underlying law. Here, the law of California. Section 523A2A takes the debt as it finds it. So if California did not extend the liability to honest partners, Section 523A2A would have no role to play. Bartenwerfer's fairness-based critiques seem better directed toward the state law that imposed the obligation on her in the first place. And while Bartenwerfer paints a picture of liability imposed willy-nilly on hapless bystanders, the law of fraud does not work that way. Ordinarily, a faultless individual is responsible for another's debt only when the two have a special relationship, and even then, defenses to liability are available. For instance, though an employer is generally accountable for the wrongdoing of an employee, he usually can escape liability if he proves that the employee's action was committed outside the scope of employment. Similarly, if one partner takes a wrongful act without authority or outside the ordinary course of business, then the partnership, and by extension, the innocent partners, are generally not on the hook. Partnerships and other businesses can also organize as limited liability entities which insulate individuals from personal exposure to the business's debts. Individuals who themselves are victims of fraud are also likely to have defenses to liability. If a surety or guarantor is duped into assuming secondary liability, then his obligation is typically voidable. Likewise, if a purchaser unwittingly contracts for fraudulently obtained property, he may be able to rescind the agreement. Thus, victims have a variety of antecedent defenses at their disposal that, if successful, protect them from acquiring any debt to discharge in a later bankruptcy proceeding. All of this said, innocent people are sometimes held liable for fraud they did not personally commit, and if they declare bankruptcy, Section 523A2A bars discharge of that debt. So it is for Bartenwerfer, and we are sensitive to the hardship she faces. But Congress has evidently concluded that the creditor's interest in recovering full payment of debts obtained by fraud outweighs the debtor's interest in a complete fresh start. And it is not our role to second-guess that judgment. Part 3 We affirm the Ninth Circuit's judgment that Kate Bartenwerfer's debt is not dischargeable in bankruptcy. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.